0: Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respects to Elders past, present, and emerging. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. In partnership with Hear Studios, we hold regular petra Kutcher nights at Yarra Libraries, so we thought it was time we shared some of the recordings from our very first with you. The night's theme was a protest against forgetting. And our participants all interpreted the theme in their own way. From family history, to futuristic proceedings, to John Howard's Ladies Auxiliary Fan Club. But first, in case you're not familiar with Petra here's Community Programs Officer Eliza Coyle.
1: Eliza, could you tell our listeners a bit about Petra Uh, Sure, Megan. It's basically a format. You have 20 slides on PowerPoint and there's 20 seconds allocated per slide. And so basically the slides click over in the background per 20 seconds and the speaker needs to speak to these slides. So it can be quite nerve-wracking to keep up. So it's a really fun format. And it came originally from Japan. Um, designed by a man in architectural firm because he said that architects talk too much. So the idea is to get to the point as quickly as possible and communicate an idea. Sounds fun. I'm kind of glad that I'm not presenting in that format in any
0: way, but um, <laughs> or even more kudos to the people who participated. Could you let us know a bit more about the theme that our speakers were,
1: well, speaking to on the night? Sure. The theme was really important for the event. Um, it took a lot of negotiation between us and here's studio and so what we came up with was basically a communal debate. So we wanted it to be local, we wanted it to be relevant, and we wanted to put people's opinions on the stage and put local residents on the stage as well. So the theme is, in our culture, the process of forgetting is systematic. Indigenous histories and the basic human right of refuge are denied. Keep cups are carried while we practise collective amnesia about what science to predicts for our planet. At the local level, we forget the buildings and hangout spots that once defined us, the activists that fought for us and the stories that shaped us. In this campaign against forgetting what must be remembered. And that was the theme that we had for the event. Thanks, Eliza.
0: Could you introduce the first people we'll be hearing from?
1: Sure, I'd love to. Uh, It's actually two people, uh, Katrina and Gracie Lolicato. Together, they're the co-directors of the Foundling Archive, uh, the Fanling Archive aims to build on our understanding of Australian culture, identity and experience by providing opportunities for anyone's perspective to be documented, conserved and shared.
2: Ready, set, oh. go. Okay, <laughs>
3: I'll say hello, uh,
1: my name is Gracie and this is Katrina. Um, so we and our brothers
3: had a pretty fantastic childhood. Uh, Mum and Dad worked in the family business, a concrete plant in Thomastown with our grandparents and we were surrounded by an amazing network of extended family and friends. Dad would tell us stories about growing up, a non-Anglo kid, uh, really quite impoverished, on a farm in Swan Hill. Um, And there were stories of rat plagues and picking tomatoes before going to school, uh, but also really kind of tragic farm accidents and and affairs and stories of botched backyard abortions. Um, There was always stories about dealing with kind of intolerance and racism at school and within the community. There were stories of escape routes away from the prisoner of war camps in Tatura, And then there was the time he met the Queen. These were always really personal stories. There's the Queen. (laughs) These were always really personal stories, but they were punctuated with greater social historical meaning. So mum wasn't such a great storyteller. Um, She would go to op shops and markets and she would bring home anything that she felt... um, had a had a history of sentimental value and she just couldn't bear to see this stuff being chucked out, right? Mum's house was also the dumping ground for our extended family's stuff, everyday items, old family videos and photos and documents, just small household objects. Um, but these objects become sacred when they help keep knowledge and memory through generations. Wowzers! Mum saved our granddad's key to that concrete plant. Um, she framed it and she kept it and she, she kept it because it reminds her to tell us that my granddad worked in a job for seven days a week for 30 years that he he absolutely hated. Um, He was an artist, a musician, a man of books. And we know that my grandmother started that business during a time in history when we're told that women didn't work, right? And they started this business not because they had some kind of strange affiliation with concrete, but because it was a growth industry, factories were closing down, um, no-one else would give them a job, and, uh, yeah... The business was profiled in a Yellow Pages ad. Um, now there's no mention of my grandmother in this ad. Um, they spelt his surname wrong. They've given him a more manageable ethnic name. Um, and if we compare our truth with this official record, um, we can see that there's evidence of how records of history reflect policy and politics of the time. But we also get a sense um, that through the transmission of our personal stories, we can change the narrative. There's all the kids. All the- in we we sharing this history with our kids, we're able to place our family within that great Australian story. And we're not just descendants of people from another place, but share in uniquely Australian values and experiences. And in sharing our family's experiences, we protest against a one-dimensional retelling of Australian history. So, right, the family Archive. Um, wow, that's a bit askew. Like not that? really. <laughs> um, <so laughs> that's us, but we were in our early 30s. Eventually, a long time after this. Um, <laughs> freshly educated, we went back to school and we were looking for a way to merge our past work experiences in a whole heap of <gasps> projects. And now we pause. Da-na-na-na. No. But we'll just... I'm just going to keep going. In our... We were, yeah, looking for a way to kind of merge our, our life history, our experiences, our education um, in some kind of line of employment. that still kind of spoke at objects and stuff. Katrina, you take So, we started the Foundling Archive. So this is, like
4: our mum, we started going to op shops and we started collecting, we've got about 12,000 objects now, of lost personal effects, photography, film,
3: personal diaries, letters, letters, um, letters diaries,
4: passports.
3: Letters. Um, we obsessively shopped, didn't we, I think, yeah. Um, And what we wanted to do was, we we desperately wanted to preserve these and conserve them and and archive them, but we also wanted to see if we could find that personal, um, the social and historical meaning within the personal stories and these personal histories. So we hope that this collection
4: and through our historical, archaeological um, and sociological knowledge would um, be able to shed a new light or add a new dimension to the Australian narrative But as word got out about this archive, what we found happening was that people were actually calling us to get rid of their stuff, right? Um, And we had forgotten that it's people that make history, not the bloody things.
3: Um, So keeping in mind the connection we had to our family's stuff and to our family's stories, this was absolutely heartbreaking to us. Um, And we would be begging people to hold on to their stuff and there was this to and fro and they'd be like, no, take my stuff, and we'd be like, no, keep your stories, keep your objects. Uh, So we came to understand
4: that the experiences that these objects held could contradict, they could confirm and they could add notions of Australianness and Australian life and that these were best remembered actually by the people who already had them under their drawers, in their basements, whatever it is, garages that we have in Australia.
3: So we stopped collecting objects and started recording experiences and perspectives. Uh, We wanted to record a snapshot of Australian everyday life from the perspective of individuals and families, communities, um, and we went out and we vox popped and we record conversations. We hand out these little piece, scrap pieces of paper and we leave them around places and people fill them out and we go back and collect them. Next one. Oh, we we established the good room uh, in Brunswick as a place for others to share their perspectives and experiences through storytelling and poetry and art and documentary and text. We host movie screenings and workshops and other fun things, exhibitions, discussion groups. And we continue to build um, projects that incorporate text and photography and film and recorded conversations, um, often still in partnership with local councils, families, individuals, community groups. And uh, because In Your Habitus is an imprint of everything that is both terrible and amazing about Australian society. Mm. And um, your personal experiences help everyone better understand our collective history So we ask individuals and families and communities across Australian society to protest against the omission of your perspective from Australian history. Record your stories and your perspective and we want them to share, we want you to share them in any way you can, share your truth, share your personal histories, please. One last little guy from The Simpsons. We want to ensure that Australian society, Australian social history I should say includes all of us, um, regardless of place and gender, age, culture, class, education. Um, socioeconomic status, um, the lot. Until then, we hope that the Fowling Archive can protest against the omission of truly diverse perspectives from the Australian story. Thank you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> right, uh, can I just?
1: So that was Katrina and Gracie from the Fowling Archive with their take on a protest against forgetting. Uh, next, we have writer, artist, and arts organizer Nick Lowe. Uh Niklo's first book, Arms Race, was an ABR book of the year and was shortlisted for the Readings Prize and the Queensland Literary Awards.
5: Uh Katoa, uh uh Kato. Uh Niklo is my name. I'm Gita Māori from the south of New Zealand and I've lived in Melbourne for fifteen years and I am very, very interested in the political history of this place. I write short stories, I'm trying to Do something for you today which is to turn a short story into 20 slides, 20 seconds per slide. So this has been a serious exercise in editing. Uh, I've also got a black history as a graphic designer, a secret history as a graphic designer, so I got to bust out Photoshop and have some fun with that. Um, So just to set the scene, think about the Shrine of Remembrance. Think about Melbourne, think about Dawn, first light, a white council ute speeding through the waking city. Let's go. Oh, whoop. I should probably turn the page. It's just past dawn and a ute full of council workers pulls up outside the Shrine of Remembrance. Big Toff is at the wheel. He's a reassuring presence up there. He's not even 40 but he's big and dark and weathered and next to him Archie looks tiny. The old man shuffles his paperwork one last time. Hey relax uncle, Toff says. If you can't beat him, join him and Archie grins and he climbs down from the cab and he jams on his foreman's hard hat over his wiry gray hair and the shrine is already busy with workers and trucks all right you mob he calls let's get to work by the time the police arrive the shrine is a mess of smashed rock and two officers step from the car hey what's the problem Biff big top asks Reports of vandalism, the sergeant says. But you're council, right? Yeah, right, Toff says. What, you're doing maintenance? The sergeant asks. Nah, Toff says. We've got a mineral exploration license. <laughs> what? We're digging for gold, Toff says. And the sergeant looks stunned. You got any paperwork? Toff hands over the folder, and the sergeant reads in silence. Hang on, he says. You're not the council, you're the Aboriginal Land Council. Is this some kind of stunt? An old war veteran approaches, radiating distress like an old-fashioned bar heater. They are activists, he moans. And Toff just laughs. He says, we were activists. Now we're the Aboriginal Land Council of Minerals. If you can't beat them, join them. And if you don't believe me, call the Department of Crown Lands. The sergeant dials the number. <laughs> And a bored operator puts him on hold. And after a long wait and a short conversation about GPS coordinates and application fees in an online complaint form, the sergeant hangs up in a rage. See, Archie calls. We've got a permit to do this. These are your laws, mate, so you're with us on this. Permits can be revoked, the sergeant says. Who are you? I'm Archie Ryan, the old man says. This is Archie Ryan. I'm the CEO. I know you. You're a serial protester, the sergeant says. Nah, we're done protesting, Archie says. No one gives a shit about land rights in this country anymore. This is a commercial mining operation. The old veteran steps forward, furious. But men fought and died for this country, he says. Why the bloody hell would you mine here? Mate, Archie says with a sour grin, we're hardly going to with our own land. That afternoon, the city explodes with outrage and confusion. (laughs) (laughs) News crews scramble and wild rumours spread about plans to strip mine the MCG and Andrew Bolt is spotted plagiarising Green's press releases opposing mining on sacred land and only Tony Abbott distinguishes himself, giving a brilliant speech whereby he coins the phrase, support all the diggers all the time, whatever they're digging. (laughs) And at King's Domain, a crowd of angry pensioners surges up the hill. And mixed in with the protesters is a steady stream of sympathetic locals and activists. And the youth wing of Socialist Alliance digs a solidarity hole in the lawn. And a tattooed man with a great big red flag pushes forward and he says, This is a bloody good action. This isn't an action, Archie says. Yeah, good line, the man says. That'll confuse the bosses. I'm serious, you little s***. Archie says, This is a commercial mining operation. Piss off. Us bosses, we've got a press conference to do. Archie's amplified voice echoes across the domain. Afternoon, I'm Archie Ryan. I'm a Wurundjeri man and the CEO of the Aboriginal Land Council of Minerals. Today, the King's Domain mine opens. We have every confidence that it will yield significant quantities of gold. And there are cries of shame. But it's clear, Archie says, that locals will support this mine because it will bring jobs and it will bring growth. Stand back a minute, would you? The cenotaph thunders to the ground. your are dead meat, a veteran screams. Now, Archie says, of course old soldiers have legitimate concerns. I deeply respect old soldiers. The more time I spend with old soldiers, the more I consider myself their true friend. We recognise they have a rich and ancient culture and so their culture is dying out. The mine will help preserve it for all time. First, we are offering work in the mine to all able-bodied veterans. And once the shrine has been dynamited, we will donate fragments to the museum and plant two, two large commemorative shrubs. <laughs> the bellow from the crowd this time is a physical force. And Archie begins to wind up his speech. He says... We look forward to working with veterans. We look forward to contributing to the nation's wealth and making a meaningful living for ourselves like you've always wanted. So thanks, and if you don't mind me saying, go f*** yourselves. (laughs) The crowd explodes and the police line stumbles back under the onslaught. There are screams as pensioners go down beneath the hooves of police horses and the old timers beat the cops back with their walking frames We have to call this off, Toff tells Archie. They'll tear us apart. And Archie looks back and he sees that the work gang has emerged from the diggings in a huddle and they're carrying something towards the light. And the police line disintegrates and the crowd is upon them and they all reach the light at the same instant and the mob rears back when they see what it is that the workers are carrying. It is a huge slab Of gold. (laughs) As thick as Toff's enormous thigh, half a million bucks worth at least, dug from beneath the shrine. And for one brief moment, the crowd stands there in silent awe. And in that glittering pause, a microsecond before the Melbourne rush tears the city apart. Each of them feels the ripe slink of blood in their veins and something else too, something huge and fierce welling up inside.
1: Thank you. Uh, That was Nick Lowe presenting a short story in 20 slides. Uh, You can find or order Nick's Arms Race and other stories from your local branch. He is currently working on his second book as well. David Nichols is a lecturer in urban planning at the University of Melbourne. He recently co-edited Cultural Sustainability in Rural Communities, Rethinking Australian Country Towns.
6: That's all. Thanks very Thanks. much. So what I want to talk about is I mean, wow, it's kind of like a forgotten protest uh, against forgetting in a way, if that is at all possible. Miliara is a area out Ascot Vale and Keelore, so it's you know it's actually in the city of Mooney Valley. And my colleagues Victoria Klankovic and Robert Freestone and I have done a lot of work on this particular part of the world, um, partly because of these uh, big uh, internal open spaces. Now I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty as I do with my students about what constitutes a garden city and what constitutes a garden suburb. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole and then I'd have to give you an exam at the end of it and you know, you, many of you would get it wrong. Garden cities, um, its it's very easy to get wrong. Anyway, Ebenezer Howard, Late 19th century Englishman who invented uh, the idea of the garden city, the best of the city and the country in, in, in a city. Walter Burley Griffin and Marian Marnie Griffin, uh, best known in this country as the, the people who designed Canberra. Uh, they lived in Melbourne uh, from around the time, or about 100 years ago actually, the time of the First World War uh, up until the mid 20s. And this is the last uh, plan that they prepared for any kind of suburban subdivision. In, um, in Australia, the Miliara, this is the central part. Um, first known as City View, then known as Miliara. And what really intrigues me and entrances me continually is the park and playground space. Here you see uh, a reasonably early version of the um, advertising for what was still the, known then as City View Estate. They changed it to Miliara very early in the piece. Miliara means, it's an Aboriginal word, it means to see at a distance. Uh, it's from Northern New South Wales. Uh, it has no special uh, relevance in Melbourne, and Miliara in Northern New South Wales has more or less disappeared off the map. Here's uh, a slightly later uh, advertising plan showing uh, some of the some of the land in uh, 1939. There on the left, and uh, the usual kind of boosterism nonsense. You see the um, over there a kind of a, a fake uh, sort of perspective, but a, a kind of um, it gives you a false impression of how close it is to the city and here's uh, here's yet another beautiful plan. See all the green uh, and that's that's the thing that really entrances me and of course it's a feature of Griffin plans and we see many of them. There's five I think in Melbourne. Henry Scott commissioned the Griffins to, to do this work. Henry Scott is a shadowy figure in, uh, in Melbourne real estate slash planning uh, history uh, and uh, seems to be, you know, I'm sorry if... Uh, uh, if there are any of his relatives here, but uh, a bit of a charlatan. Uh, not necessarily uh, doing the right thing at all times. So what happens is the land goes into, sold fairly well in the 20s, but as is so often the case across Melbourne, um, by the 19, early 1960s, uh, a lot of the land is uh, has not been built on and it's unsewered, it's unserviced essentially. And there is uh, a major problem where... Uh, The the new problem, I think, from our perspective, the Metropolitan Board of Works wants to redesign the Miliara land. uh, Much smaller lots, much, much less open space. And uh, this is where, you know, people start talking about, well, this is a Griffin plan and we need to preserve uh, that. The local council, the city of Keilor and uh, the MMBW, they start doing things like redesigning the shopping centre. If you've ever got Miliara Road, you'll see Miliara Shopping Centre is up there. Um, staggeringly ordinary shopping centre. Uh, then again, you would say perhaps the uh, the original plan would not have worked anyway. Here's, um, there's no such thing as a typical house in that area, but this is, um, you know, it's it's suburban heartland, let's face it, and it's lower middle class, uh, suburban uh, Keylor slash Avondale Heights. You know, I mean I, it's, just a, it's, a, it's a random red brick house, obviously, but there's a lot of houses like this. This guy up here on the right is uh, a man called Sam. He's a Macedonian-born, uh, and he and some of his neighbours got together and they started using this uh, otherwise neglected interior park space to grow vegetables, and they gave um, the city of Mooney Valley in the 90s uh, an idea about these spaces. One of the ideas, well, this is the city of Keylor here, this is uh, City of Mooney Valley, one of the ideas was this land, these these kind of park spaces um, are a nuisance and we should get rid of them. And uh, so uh, unless there's someone like Sam and his neighbours doing something there, we're, we're just going to do things like uh, subdivide these spaces and turn them into either housing or um, a favourite is uh, old people's homes. So they're they're taking away the, uh, the amenity by stealth in a way after... Uh, In the mid-60s, after having been kind of driven back by the protest of the people, um, they have started to move in and say, actually, these spaces could make rather nice, um, you know, residential areas uh, win-win because then we don't have to mow the grass in them. So I guess there's a... What I I guess I'm trying to say about Miliara, really, and this is what we've been doing for a long time with our various works, is drawing attention to the fact that, you know, every every 20 years or maybe a little bit more, uh, the people of this particular area go, actually, we want to preserve what we have here. Uh, unfortunately, they tend not to have any kind of uh, community memory about what has gone on before. So you really have to go down deep into the uh, into the archives, for instance, the Public Records Office, or perhaps uh, things in the State Library. There's very little um, collective memory about these things. This is one of those old people's homes that... Uh, has been uh, implanted in place of, of uh, the open space. And I would tend to say that it you know historians uh, like myself and my colleagues um, really have to strive hard to make people aware of the past in these particular places. People tend to dismiss suburbia and they tend to think that suburbia is the same wherever you go and to one, in one way that is true. Uh, in another way, um, you can have absolutely extraordinary suburban spaces, such as um, this particular community garden, which, uh, oddly enough, um, this is a, this is a little a little bit like you know ending the story by saying then we got married. But um, I ended up joining the this community garden and being a, a part of the uh, the administrative the management committee as well. So I'm kind of I've kind of jumped in probably foolishly and and got heavily involved. Um, I should have just been a, a, a idle, you know, side, sidebar participant, but um, this has been um, one way in which the local community has kind of taken back control, and I'm writing the history of that particular community garden as well at the same time. So thank you very much.
2: Thank
1: you. That was David Nichols. Up next we have Jason Semeru, who will be introduced by Amon of his studio.
2: Jason is a proud Yorta Yorta man, associate producer at Malthouse Theatre. Producer of Black Cabaret and Associate Producer of The Shadow King. Co-Producer and Programmer of Smith Street Dreaming, which we worked on once together. Sure associate Producer of Leaps and Bounds Festival. That's a lot of things. Event, And when we were just chatting, he's just also been working the last year at the City of Yarra as the Events uh, Festival Officer. Um, the founder of the Melbourne Comedy Festival Deadly Funny Program. Um, you're the producer of the Reconciliation Comedy Gala. And producer is Racism, The New Black. It is. Yeah. Um, producer Black Wiz. Correct. Yep. And Hip Hip Hooray, <coughs> Deadly Style. Deadly Style. And right. you <coughs> receive the VIPA 2012 Uncle Jack Charles Award and the British Council's National Indigenous Leadership Award. That'll be a viper. Yep, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let me just segue. You just, you just come back from your country a few weeks ago. Yeah. had a bit of camping, yeah.
7: A bit of camping, yeah. Two. these these work all right don't they yeah, yeah. i might this yeah. shoes that is okay. yeah. that's a okay. In this land. We lead our own ways. Gi Danawa Kanalagi. We are no longer free. We are dispossessed. Bil Balak Yambala. My language, my ceremony, my herons, my lands, me, all gone, yo, that's my people, this is my people. (laughs) Kenapa buat malu buat kalau <laughs> protest against ignorance a protest against oppression a protest against suppression I protest against forgetting. Gungar Gundic, Larin Gundic, Larga Balak, Tari Balak, Wan Balak, Young Balak. The image of the old man that you're saying was the image of my great-great-grandfather, Walpubunoon, head man of the young Bala clan up on board. I protest against forgetting my great-grandfather of mine, Walpubunoon, that's his name. Thank you. That
1: was Jason Tamaru. You're listening to an off-the-shelf episode of the Yarra Libraries podcast. Up next, we have Liz Connor, again introduced by Amon Biral.
2: Liz Connor is an ARC future fellow at La Trobe University. She is the author of Skin Deep, Settler Impressions of Aboriginal Women, 2016, and The Spectacular Modern Woman, Feminine Visibility in the 1920s. Um, She is co-editor of Aboriginal History, a columnist, at New Matilda, and has published wildly... Uh, wildly?
8: <laughs> wild. <laughs>
2: wild! This is broken sleep of seven-week-old. Um, published widely in academic mainstream press on gender, race and representation. Um, she is also a community campaigner, fa- founding and convening the uh, Coalition Against Sexual Violence Propaganda, 1990 on Media, Portrayal of Sexual Violence, The Stick with Wick, 1997, campaign on native title. This is a lot of amazing things. The Mothers of Intervention, 2000 campaign on maternity leave. And the Guerrilla Theatre Troop, the John, John Howard's Ladies Auxiliary <laughs> Fan Club with Zelda Dar. 1996. Uh, the most recently, the Climate Guardians with Deborah Hart.
9: Merci. One should only publish wildly. <laughs> it's the only way to do it.
2: Ready, set, go. Okay, right.
9: Okay, so um, I guess I'm speaking to an audience that understands that we're currently in an emergency in terms of climate and a whole bunch of other apocalyptic scenarios messing on our horizon. And um, I don't need to sort of go through the, you know, the the whys and wherefores of that, only to say that no generation in human history has... Um, tempted such a fate, or stood on such a threshold. I'm sure that was less than that twenty was seconds. Less. So far, less. Anyway, so this isn't a how-to. I'm going to talk about my my theatre activism, and it's not a how-to on successful interventions. Um, it's more a reflection. I've only had three really successful interventions, and the rest, dozens, have been that really. Was, hey.
2: That was right.
9: That was 20 seconds? Yeah, that lasts. Okay. So by hyperbole, I mean exaggeration for rhetorical effect. Here I'm working with Deborah Kelly. The slide before was a moment in my misspent use at, at a Catholic ladies' college where I screened the Franklin Dam documentary and sold tickets and I sold a lot of tickets. Uh, sorry, not tickets, uh, stickers. And I sold a lot of stickers. And as I was walking to the train, all the girls had stuck the No damn sticker over the top of their knowledge and virtue Uh school crest and I had an aha moment and that is if you get the, pre- the preconditions of spectacle right you can actually um, be quite effective around your campaign and bring people along who aren't particularly that convinced because I don't think the girls gave a rat's ass about Franklin Dam. So by hyperbole I mean exaggeration for rhetorical effect and by spectacle I mean um, and I'm an academic, I'm a visual historian so I'm meaning sort of mass or industrialised image production and these are some of the campaigns I did with Deborah Kelly and you'll know her from uh, some of her stuff and we produced these uh, armbands and uh, you know ribbons and uh, the house plaques and the good thing about that, the successful thing about that was that uh, you kind of need to have um, a commodity form as part of your campaign because your campaigns all need money and so having a, a sort of commodity form you can sell means that you can both use it to bring people along with you and at the same time you can um, you know um, raise money for your campaign and the running of the campaign so then we did the mothers of intervention and this is the john howard ladies auxiliary fan club there was we were all called beatrice so there, were, there was be white be right be rich be straight and i was married to ernest lee white and uh, we intervened. So what worked with this, I think, was that by that point in 2007 when, when Howard was actually starting to slip. So this is the um, page three of the age the next day after we intervened John Howard. And what we did was we just went to the hotel where he was staying, we parked our car behind the, the campaign bus and we followed it to the tan and then we got out. Um, and we got out and the cameras missed this moment but I'll never forget it. So we got out. Of, oh, so now I have to jump ahead. This is. Oh, I have to turn up. So this is my sister, um, Angela, and her house is burnt down in um, on the Black Saturday fires. And I see a strong correlation, and indeed the CS CSIRO saw or a strong correlation to um, climate change. I mean, bushfires happen in Australia, but 173 people. So I wanted to do some activism specifically around climate, and I wasn't feeling very funny about it anymore. In 2007 this beautiful young woman Alana Beltran had created this extraordinary visual spectacle called the World Angel. So I got in touch with her and asked if I could use that to create I thought the climate movement was missing two things and one's an anthem and the other is a visual symbol. And I thought that the the angel wings cuz it's transferable, you can make murals of it, you can create, you know, badges, you know, you can people can wear them easily enough. That we could create a sort of symbol for the climate movement around portending danger. I don't know why that's upside down now, but we opened the Lawn um, Sculpture Biennale and we're holding search and rescue flares. um, And, uh, you know, that was actually quite... um, It was effective, so it sort of was this crossover between art performance and um, and protest spectacle. And the point I want to make with this slide was we just kind of happened to run into... Um, poor Jerry Hall, who thought we were like Christian evangelists, <laughs> who came running at her and she's like, oh, and we just said, we're atheists. And she went, oh, visibly, was relieved. So the point I'm making here about, is about celebrity endorsement for your campaigns is that it can be highly mutable because she then went off and married Rupert Murdoch a few <laughs> weeks later and so we, we couldn't use her celebrity endorsement anymore. So here's the G20 and this was a big moment because... As with the John Howard Ladies Auxiliary Fan Club, what we did at the G20 was get in the frame with a politician. Wherever there's a politician, there's going to be a lot of cameras, so you really want to get in the frame with them if you're wanting to make an impact with your spectacle. In this case, we didn't get in the frame of uh, Greg Hunt. We got up on his roof (laughs) instead. Um, But he's nowhere to be seen, and that was um, an intervention that didn't particularly work. It's a really great visual, but it never went anywhere. In Paris, at Le Bourget, we really smashed it. And that was because when we went to Le Bourget, we were the only protesters outside the front of Le Bourget, the COP21 in Paris, right? We were the only protesters that got anywhere near it. And, in fact, the second time we tried to get near it, we got thrown into buses and dragged off and arrested by the French police. But at this point, um, we they didn't know whether we were performers and part of the show, you know, so they let us stand at the very front and as all the delegates got off, we're standing there with this big i you know, signed like cold girls like this. And they all got up and took selfies with us. So we really got through, you know, like this is Van Badham, she was one of the angels. This is the front page of Le Monde, that was the front page of the age, and these are some of the actions that we did. You know, just before the riot in Place de République, um, you know, some visuals. We were asked to lead the um the march at the at the moment that COP twenty one in Paris made their announcement. And there was really a lost moment there. And this is the last slide. So this is Newcastle. This is the last action I did with the Angels. And so we managed to, um, we're blockading the train into into the Hunter, you know, from the Hunter Valley into Newcastle. It's the largest point. And every year there's a big blockade of coal. So thank you. That's the kind of, the, those are some examples of using spectacle that works and sometimes doesn't. <laughs>
2: Can you tell us the end of the story?
9: John Howard's story was hilarious. Uh, sorry. Um we are we are way ahead of all the, the, the tour the, the the bus with the journalist has parked and John Howard has been driven to a point further along the tan and he gets out and goes behind a tree. We've gone around the bus with our driver and I get out. <laughs> Me and my friend Zelda, we get out and we're dressed impeccably as 1950s Housewives, and there's just this moment where he goes <laughs> like his face was you know all his dreams had come true and then i it was just just for one moment i had him one moment and there were no cameras to record this beautiful moment and i held out the plate which was a green queen's green plate with a with a doily and yellow cake so iced yellow cake and i said yellow cake mr howard and he went it's a bit early in the morning, for me, starts to move off, and then my friend has this little vial of jelly beans and says, "Electoral Viagra, Mr. Howard. We know you're facing a very hard election." <laughs> and that's when he, he put in his, you know, headphones and marched off like this. And that, from that point, we were chasing him, but for a, one little moment, he fell for it. That was Liz Connor.
1: Up next, we have the last presenter from our protest against forgetting, Arnold Zabel.
2: Arnold Zabel is a writer, novelist and human rights advocate and one of Australia's most loved storytellers. Um, his award-winning books include Jewels and in Ashes, The Fig Tree and three novels, Café Shahrazad, Scraps of Heaven and Seas of Many Returns. His most recent book is Violin Lessons. He is author of numerous columns, stories and essays and co-author of the play Can Yama Khan in which asylum seekers tell their stories. Thanks.
8: So these are photos that I took in 1986 on a journey to the borderlands of Poland and Russia. And so these are the photos you'll see. But the story I'm telling takes place about seven minutes walk from here, in 387 Canning Street, North Carlton, where I grew up. And I lived in two worlds as a child. On the streets of Carlton, I was an Aussie kid hanging out with my Aussie mates. We had a lot of freedom to get up to no good. Our parents were so busy making a new life in a new world. But once through the door of the house, I was somewhere else. Another language was being spoken, in fact, English was my parents' sixth language, and the mother tongue was Yiddish, Mameloshin, mother tongue. There was a kind of magic about this. My mum used to be a singer in those borderlands, and my father was a Yiddish poet, which meant he could earn maximum one cent a year doing what he loved most. So he worked in factories and on Victoria Market and um, hated what he was doing. But would spend his time at night writing and reading his beloved Yiddish poets. Yiddish, language, I think the thing I loved about Yiddish were the insults. I hope an umbrella goes into your stomach and opens up. (laughs) And my mother would reply, I would hope you lose all your teeth, but one tooth should remain so you can have a toothache. (laughs) May your feet be made of wood, your stomach contain water, your head be made of glass, so when your feet catch fire, your stomach will boil and your head will explode. (laughs) And your eyes pop out. But there was another side to it. My mum, waking up from a dream, yelling, Mama, Mama, photographs. Who are these people? Three of my six sisters, three of my brothers. Uh, Your cousin Chaimke and Frida, your grandmother Hannah Esther. Where are they now? I don't want to talk about it. I grew up in a house of ghosts and that dream, Mama, Mama, and one day I crept down the passage and I heard her say and tell my father, I've just had that dream. My village is on fire and I'm running from the flames of my brothers and sisters and one by one they fall until I'm the last one left running. And Then I knew there was a missing link in the ancestral chain four grandparents that were wiped clean from the face of the earth then i knew also that one day i would do a journey and so in 1986 i finally did that journey trans-siberian back to the borderlands and i went back where i went back to the places i would hear my parents and their old world friends talking about in the distant kitchen over endless glasses of tea and the occasional nip of vodka And I heard these words, Bialystok, Brainsk, Orly, Grudek, Bielsk. This was my dreaming. This is a land of dreamings. The protest against forgetting is the protest against forgetting our dreamings. We're a nation of immigrants and indigenous people. A new world with an ancient past. A grand symphony with many melodies and each one of us each one of us have song lines that go back somewhere else and in that somewhere else there is both light and there is darkness there is the gate of death and genocide and there is also the last six jews in the city of bialystok on the borderlands there is also light a beautiful landscape there is also a place which when i finally crossed that border looked back at me on the one hand with a sense of recognition yes these are the places my parents talked about in that kitchen in 387 canning street and it's beautiful far more beautiful than I ever imagined, but at the same time, it is far more devastating. And when I returned from that journey, I returned with the maps of my childhood. I returned with the images of my, of my parents' childhood. I returned with the maps of the places they'd walked and the streets they'd walked and a new conversation began. This conversation took place in the kitchen of the house in 387 Canning Street with my mother, and it took place with my father in Curtin Square, opposite the Lady Gary Kindergarten, where I went to kindergarten as a child. And all I had to say was, Shenkovich Avenue, and my father would say, yes, that's where Kondruchik, the white Russian, sold ice cream, and that's where we went to the Palais Theatre on a Saturday night, and that's where I heard your mother say to me in 1932, as we were walking through the streets, how would you like to move to Australia? I have a sister living there and she can get a permit. And so they did that journey, never knowing that they would never again see their Bialystok, they would never again see their parents, their brothers, their sisters, their uncles, their aunts, their cousins, they would never again see the beautiful landscape they love so much. The Bocciani, the storks that perch on the chimneys in those amazing nests. This photo was taken early morning at the end of that journey. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you to Gracie and Katrina Lalicato, Nick Lowe, David Nichols, Jason Tamaru, Liz Connor and Arnold Zabel for participating in this Petra Kucha event organised in partnership with HERE Studios. Thanks also to Eliza Coyle for explaining just what Petra is. There are regular public discussions at Yarra Libraries, so please keep an eye on the website. For you, we'd recommend Cultural Forum Volume 6, Indigenous Languages which you'll find at Bagunganungan North Fitzroy Library on March 13th. If you're keen to read any of the books written by our Petra Kutcher participants, please pop into your local branch or place a reservation online. In the meantime, Yarra Libraries promises to always use less than 20 slides when we explain where your book is located in the library. Happy reading!